Welcome to Rec Talks, a podcast dedicated to the latest trends from the world of rec tech, fintech, and financial regulations. My name is Klaus Christensen, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of award-winning rec tech provider Know Your Customer. This is our first interview of 2023, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Luke Raven as my guest. Luke is an experienced MLRO who has worked in AML, KYC, fraud, and sanctions for over 13 years. During his career, Luke has worked at both big four Australian banks and global fintechs, and most recently at a crypto startup. He is passionate about ensuring compliance actually translates into real-world outcomes in the fight against financial crime. Luke, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. So for those of our listeners who don't follow you on LinkedIn, your style is quite unique. You frequently share news and thought-provoking posts about the world of financial crime and compliance, but you often start with a meme or similar that gets us to look before then digging deeper into the really serious and heavily researched content you explore. Does this approach come from a recognition that sometimes the world of financial crime is just too serious for its own good, or was it not planned at all? Thanks. I, I love that you're starting with this question because I'm pretty obsessed with LinkedIn at the moment. I pour a lot of effort in. So it's such a positive and supportive community that's developing there. So very, very happy to talk about that. To answer your question simply, I definitely think that humor and lightheartedness can help because otherwise the consumer of your content may get too depressed or too bored to continue consuming it, especially when we're talking about some of these very grave and serious and complex matters. But I have to admit, I can't claim that it was any sort of strategic decision on my part. My style and the approach that I take has just kind of developed over time as I have. It's really more just a reflection of me getting comfortable and coming out of my shell and being authentic. People that know me in my personal life aren't at all surprised by how I sort of do things on LinkedIn or my online presence, because it's exactly as I am as a person. I'm a bit of a joker, a bit of a larrikin, <laughs> but at the same time, I do take things seriously and have a lot of commitment to an informed discourse and effective results. But yeah, no, um, no master planning on my part, more just good luck that my natural tone seems to resonate with people. <laughs> it certainly does. Well done, Luke, because uh, that is something that drew me in. The field of um, financial crime, compliance, AML, and so on is often perceived as dry, but I don't think it is really at its core, and there's no need to make it so. 100%. How did you choose financial crime compliance as your path? What drew you to this line of work, actually? Yeah, I mean, a theme you'll find throughout my answers is, is that I'm just very lucky. So I never set out to fight financial crime. It's just something I kind of fell into and ended up loving. So when I was a kid and all throughout my formative years, I actually wanted to be a lawyer. So I studied really hard and I got into university to study and be a lawyer. But the thing about law school is it's really expensive. I took a part-time job just working in fraud prevention so I could afford the essentials that every student needs, like, you know, bread and pens and beer, which is what led me to get a job at a bank fighting credit card fraud, actually. And I fell in love with a couple of aspects of that job. And they're all the same throughout financial crime generally. So... The first one is I really love puzzle solving, It's and that's essentially the job. You have an incomplete picture of the facts, and you have to try to put together a narrative for what you think is happening with only one or two puzzle pieces. That's super interesting, and it's it's a great way to get some people started and interested in the, in the role. But then the other side of it is that financial crime really does have a, a real-world impact, and that is super motivating for me. You know, there's a heap of studies and figures out there that are very pessimistic, and they talk about all the work we need to do to improve. 
but the human element is still there. So fraud folk, sanctions, AML, we're all in one way or another having a real world impact and protecting people. And when I sort of get asked my war stories, I've, I've got war stories over 13 years, a lot of awful bad guys. And those are the stories that everyone wants to hear, but they're not the stories that get me out of bed. The ones that get me out of bed and get me really passionate about my line of work are the people that I've helped and the victims and, and things along those lines that you prevent from, from losing money or, you know, having awful things happen to them. And then the last thing, if, if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll already know this. Modesty isn't my strong suit. I think I'm, I think I'm quite good at my job. And there's also, there's a lot of demand for it. Now I mentioned these two things to brag a little bit, but not, not really to brag. <laughs> it's more because there's this really popular philosophy in uh, Japanese culture that's been adapted by all the self-help gurus called Ikigai. And it's basically this idea that you should pursue doing something that helps the world that you love that you're good at and that you can get paid for. So if you can find something that's all four of those things at once, that's just brilliant. And the funny thing, again, to me is through no real uh, planning or, or tactics of my own, I sort of fell backwards <laughs> coincidentally into the career that for me is that feeling. Love it. And the question always, does it spark joy? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Mary Kondo. <laughs> throw, throw things away that don't spark joy, but I think this career does. And as you sort of mentioned earlier about not being dry, I think that that can be really helpful as well. We don't have to sort of front up to the next generation of people and say, come and read this tome of legislation and sit in a dark office anymore. <laughs> it's, it's much more lively than that. If you look at the uh, working in the field a bit deeper, you've written about how different roles within compliance teams can be perceived in different ways, as if they were following a sort of hierarchy. According to what you write, the area of KYC is sometimes seen as the entry task that needs to be done, but the real glamorous stuff happens later and is done by sanctions, fraud, and ML CFT specialists. Given the area of expertise of our own company, we could not agree more with you when you say that KYC is the foundation of everything. Can you explore this a bit more detail and maybe share some ideas on what we can do to give KYC the credit that it's due? Definitely. I mean, you might be sad you asked because I can happily talk about KYC all day. It's the unsung hero and I'll fight anyone. I don't care. <laughs> Me too. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no getting around it, right? Like it's not infallible, but letting perfect be the enemy of good. If we're going to do that, let's just stop trying to fight financial crime at all. Honestly, like we, we have to do something. In terms of like the ideas for KYC getting the credit it's due, I think we have a lot of work to do on storytelling. Historically, if you go back 20 years, compliance is very much a dry sort of endeavor. And then the difficult thing with KYC and storytelling is that it's not driven by a metric that looks the same as, for instance, like our colleagues in risk and fraud. Yeah. So when you have to follow a colleague from risk who goes and presents to the board and they say, yes, my team and my tools cost us a million dollars this quarter, but we saved $5 million in fraud. So really, that's very easy for your board and your senior management to sort of understand. Whereas for KYC, it's not that simple if you're not good at storytelling. You have to really dive deep on the risks that are inherently avoided through your KYC. Because if you don't, and you don't really explain what's being bought with all that money, it's very easy for KYC to end up just looking like a cost. But I do tend to think that that's down to the narrative around this over time. To give you like a perfect example, I don't really need to tell you about KYC, but for your, <laughs> for your listeners, when you're looking at company onboarding in Australia, right? 
If you want to do it manually, you can. You go to our company's regulator, ASIC, and you buy an extract of that company, which will tell you who owns it. It'll tell you a few details like who the directors are and a few other pertinent things. So they cost nine bucks, nine nine Australian dollars. And then you need to pay a staff member to actually figure out what the information means. So I've heard of companies who try to get the customer to provide this information themselves, and I've done some tests myself. And the interesting thing is that what the customer tells you versus what's actually the truth straight from the company regulator are shockingly different. So I've seen people say that they're the sole owner of a company, for instance, when they aren't even one of the many owners. And I've seen people say they're a director, so they can totally authorize this and deal with the company account. And again, they won't. And the thing is, I know this is like essentially a financial crime podcast, but the thing is, there's that these weren't bad guys. These were just sort of silly, confused customers. So I was able to get the correct KYC information. We still proceeded with the onboarding. There weren't actual bad guys. It was a test. And they were just very confused. So then if I bring it back to what I was saying about storytelling, as a compliance officer, you don't need to sort of rely on this fact that, oh, maybe one or two out of 20 customers is actually a bad guy and the other 18 or 19 are enduring KYC and it's Herculean wasted effort. That's just poor storytelling. You need to know who you're dealing with for so many reasons, like who can come in and authorize an overdraft on the account, for instance. So there's all of these other reasons that you want to be knowing who your customer is other than just the pure financial crime reasons. And if you don't do it yourself and you try and rely on the customer or try and cut corners with it, you're going to end up in hot water and it may not be financial crime hot water. Yeah. Sharing success stories of when KYC actually prevents a bad guy from onboarding, it's just not something that's very widely done. A lot of the time, the statistics that go up to a board, for instance, will be, or, you know, a regional GM or, or what have you, it'll be like, oh, we had 5,000 applications and, you know, 500 of those were rejected. But if you don't drill down and say like 500 of those were rejected and of those, you know, 17 were drug traffickers, 14 were convicted of these serious other financial crimes, if you're not telling that, then it, without contextualizing that information, it just looks like, oh, we spent all this money on marketing and that went to waste for those 500 customers. No, a lot of those 500 customers that you turned away are um, are actually bad guys. You do not want. Exactly. So it's actually a positive thing. And I think flipping that narrative is challenging, but it's something that every compliance officer has to try and do. Yeah. The whole KYC story gets more interesting if you get the KYC for individuals on cruise control and think, okay, that's done. And uh, look really at the KYC of entities. That gets really interesting really quickly mm. due to the dynamic nature of those entities. And um, that's an entirely different field. If a parent company changes their shareholder, what implication does it have on who is actually owning and running the company? Yeah. That sort of thing can get and keep it interesting. Very much so, to say the least. Yeah. Let's talk about KYC and client onboarding a bit more. Quite often, the digitization of KYC and KYB and client onboarding is one of the most immediate applications of RegTech. How would you rate the level of adoption in this area by the Australian financial sector? I think Australian businesses are moving towards adoption, but that we aren't exactly leaders in this space yet. The KYC of an individual, as you mentioned, getting that on autopilot, I love that phrase. I'm going to borrow that. I hope that's okay. Go. Um, because getting that on autopilot is essential. It's so good for your customer experience. There's there's neobanks and fintechs in Australia and even actual banks in Australia where 
you can apply as Luke Raven and you can be preliminary approved subject to any, you know, name screening hits or anything like that. But if, if there's none, 60 seconds, you've got an account. You can start giving your account details out to people and, and, and receiving payments, making payments. You can order a debit card. That's tremendous. It's so good. In terms of KYB, <laughs> I think that that's where RegTech has a lot of heavy lifting to do and it can play a huge, huge part in smoothing out the onboarding and helping to identify risks. I use this visualization sort of deliberately in these current times, but we've got a Russian doll that you need to unpack, right? You have to figure out who's really at the heart of this entity and you need to unravel it. We're getting there with the KYB, but we're probably, you know, among the first sort of adopters in terms of KYC, KYB were probably basically laggards. Australia is not unique in that regard. Uh, that line in the sand that you mentioned, I would find that in, in many other markets as well. The challenger banks have done actually quite a lot for us. They, they did make onboarding for individuals so much easier, but they all, without fail, went for a retail market first. And they have that very limited effect on the business KYC and a business onboarding market at all. And that's everywhere. That's now the second stage for everybody. Uh, so, so it's not essentially that Australia's laggards. It's just that no one's good at it. <laughs> no. <laughs> what, I, what I see in Australia, for example, is that uh, they have a very good company registry. ASIC has uh, digitized very early and has digitized uh, quite a lot, is very good in availability of data about beneficial owners, shareholders, and the, the level of details and availability of documents is very good. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. The, the other thing that's kind of unique, though, in Australia is that we have this huge number of offline businesses. So they don't have that digitization because an ASIC doesn't have their owner data. So we don't have the beneficial ownership registry for anything other than companies. So, and companies, don't get me wrong, companies are the majority, right? But Australians seem to, we really love our trust structures and our associations. And when I'm talking to anyone in another country about Australia, the thing I try and emphasize is trusts. Because I think in a lot of the world, people go like, oh, who uses a trust? Like giant multinationals use trust and that's it. But no, no, businesses, small businesses, families, we have everyone uses a trust in Australia. And that can be a real challenge, as you, as you say, because ASIC doesn't have the data. They're not the appropriate regulator. And there's no registry or digitization of those offline documents like the trust deed. And yeah, it can be, can be challenging. So you're asking your customer essentially, like, please, can I have your entity KYC documents that tell me all of this information? And you're fully reliant on them providing you the up-to-date copy because there's no way for you to check it. Yeah. Essentially, which version would you like? <laughs> yeah, precisely. And that's money laundering 101 in Australia is if you want to, if you want to launder money, set up a trust Monday, get everything, then open all of your accounts with the clean trust and then update the trust privately on Wednesday. And then you can have anyone owning the trust and no one will know. Yeah. You find it down the line when you look at like, oh, why is that IP address there? Or why is this person coming into the branch and asking to talk about that and see that they're not affiliated with? But you're reliant on those kind of pickups. You're not actually identifying it up front. And it's impossible to until you have that sort of line of sight, which is a real challenge that I'm, I'm constantly sort of prattling on about, which I'm doing here as well. So I'll shush. <laughs> Look, look, this is fantastic because we, we just opened up an entirely new corner of the Rack Talks podcast, how to do money laundering tips. <laughs> Sorry. It's from, from my side. So to make it equal, you start with a two company combination in the UK, one operating co and then one holding co. The holding co is mentioned, obviously, in the shareholder list of the operating co, all good. But actually, it isn't that 
holding co that owns the the company it's one with the exact same name holding co limited but it's just incorporated somewhere else like in the caymans or in jersey nearby and since there is no indication which holding co is meant in the filings of the operating co there's no real connection that you can see it looks as if the registry is telling the pull picture but you cannot actually see which one now, here's, here's two money laundering tips for our community. True for the price of one. Obviously, why we would, would point out uh, holds would always be so that regulators actually do something about them. I don't think we're telling anybody that launders money professionally things that they don't know, to be fair. In the pandemic, did you get any regulation changes allowing for remote onboarding, like after the FATF changes, making it uh, not necessarily higher risk? We've got a relatively friendly legislative framework already for non-face-to-face onboarding and KYC in Australia, but it's definitely allowed. It's quite doable already. But one thing that we saw that was really interesting and really positive was the Australian government granted a whole suite of helpful exemptions in the height of the pandemic, even just to things like the requirements for physically signed documents or wedding signatures or a quorum, those kind of things in terms of how companies are formed and ran. And that was really helpful because it actually translates to KYC uplift as well. Because a lot of the time we would get things in the old days where you'd be like, well, this trustee is fantastic, but they've typed their name in or it's, it's DocuSigned or e-signatures. And we go, well, I don't know if this is acceptable. We'll have to go to legal. And then depending on the state and the type of entity, sometimes it was legal, sometimes it wasn't. It's just too too crazy. Whereas this general guidance, it was super helpful. It was really, really good. It's quite incredible, really, how much the pandemic has accelerated all these trends. And we, we saw that basically in every single market. It is a different world after it. It sure is. Yeah, it's a it's a hell of a silver lining in a way. Not to sound minimizing the, the horrible last three years the world has had, but there has been some positive developments in terms of tech adoption, for sure. As RegTech vendors with clients across multiple sectors, we now have worked with both highly established financial institutions and also younger, more agile fintech organizations. Similarly, throughout your career, you had a chance to work with both types of organizations. Of course, every company is unique in its own way, but did you notice any overarching differences working in both contexts? Are there any lessons that both sectors can learn from each other maybe? I love this question. The thing is, I've worked in fintechs and banks. I've worked at banks in teams that I, I didn't like, and I've worked at fintechs that I didn't like. And I've worked in fintechs that I think are world-leading and banks and teams in banks, which I think are world-leading. So I think that, that what they have something in common, really, and it's that they underestimate each other. Or, or rather, neither neither one is quite as bad as the other one thinks. So banks tend to have this mindset, it's a stereotype, right, that, that fintechs and startups are inherently higher risk because they're immature and they lack governance processes. And it can be true. I've seen it. But also, I've seen it not be the case. It's certainly not a golden rule that fintechs have to move fast and break laws. They don't. Conversely, fintechs kind of have this idea where they, they talk about how banks are terrible, basically, <laughs> because they have layers of bureaucracy, long wait times, bad customer service, all of these types of things and adverse adverse outcomes. But the difference is, I think, is that if you're a business that runs with virtually no governance, as some fintechs do, especially towards the startup phase, then any sort of sound governance is going to look a lot like horrible bureaucracy to you, but it's not. It's actually just risk management. <laughs> the other thing that fintechs forget, I think, sometimes uh, is that banks are profitable, they've scaled, and they've got a huge number of clients comparatively. So 
I kind of think of it, it's the reason that you don't see Michelin star restaurants in every corner, but you do see McDonald's on every corner, right? Good point. Yeah. I think standardization is something that fintechs could really learn from banks. They have technology to do incredible things and they know their customer and their data and they can offer a huge competitive advantage. But at the end of the day, for fintechs, it's about deciding what you want to do. Do you want to have a small number of clients with five-star meals in front of them or do you want to feed the whole world? And then for banks, of course, it's fairly standard. Be more like fintechs, adopt the tech part. I think one thing that come to mind for me about established players, don't be so timid. Digitization doesn't really work if you cut it into too many small iterative steps. None of these will amount to anything. You do sometimes have to make a bigger jump. One last question I have, and I ask them all our guests, if tomorrow you woke up and somehow you had become the global financial regulator, on top of and over Austrac, what would be the first thing you would do? And of course, why? <laughs> I love that. Uh, the power would go straight to my head. I think financial regulations, by and large, they're, they're pretty good, right? But they lack one thing, and it's an incentive. We're all stick and no carrot at the moment. And I think that especially in a capitalist economic system, that's just not going to ever cut it. So all of those sort of terrible headlines you see about, oh, we're missing 95% of crime, et cetera, et cetera. Because if any one bank went out tomorrow, even the biggest bank in the world went out tomorrow and said, look, our new mandate, our new number one priority is that we're going to end financial crime. They wouldn't win that fight. They'd go bankrupt because they would be turning away business that all of the other banks would take. So look, I think if I was king of financial regulators, I'd be proposing something to fix this. Like it's pretty crude and we can't go back to the wild west, but a bounty system or other tangible rewards. So something more sophisticated as global financial regulator king, I'm hoping I have some, some help in this, but I'm thinking things like tax breaks, levies and, and to be refunded. We pay significant levies to, to use all of the government systems that we use for reporting. But if those reports lead to actionable intelligence and fines and seizures of money, then some of that flowing back the other way. Basically, I want to really look at and rework the regulations uh, to motivate regulated parties to strive for excellence. Because right now, all we strive for, it's in the name, we strive for that bare minimum compliance. They're just enough. We're all trying for, you know, unfortunately, the, the industry as a whole is trying for 51% out of 100. That's what I would try and change. It's a broad goal. Love it, Luke. That's a really interesting thought. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rec Talks. My name is Klaus Christensen, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of award-winning RecTech provider, Know Your Customer. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to the whole series and leave us a review. And if you'd like to connect with us, suggest a guest or a topic for an upcoming episode, please send us a message at info at knowyourcustomer.com or visit knowyourcustomer.com slash rectalks.